You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Mapleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you to know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn it open once again to the book of Ecclesiastes. We are now, I think, in our third week as we've transitioned over to this book. Uh, we've spent most of our time in the New Testament since planting Harvest Plains Church, so it's been a real treat to turn over to the Old Testament, and we're likely going to be here till probably about the fall or sometime in the fall. We'll have some uh, breaks coming up mixed in with this study. In fact, over the next four weeks, you won't be hearing from me. You'll get the treat to hear from another, uh, some, a number of other men. Uh, we'll have uh, Philip Reeves, our pastoral ministry resident, who was on the keyboard this morning. He'll be preaching a couple weeks. And we've got Jack Hughes, who's our conference speaker at the beginning of March. He'll be here to preach one week. And then uh, one of our elders, Adam Nesvold, will be preaching. So we'll have a little bit of a break from Ecclesiastes. So some sorrow there, but uh, we've got quite a bit of time to enjoy this book, like I said, as we go towards the fall. Uh, And as you turn over to Ecclesiastes, let me just kind of introduce things a bit. So last week, if you were here, uh, you would have heard me explain the meaning of a song by Journey, Don't Stop Believing, and uh, not to overdo it or be too redundant, but I'm going to do the same thing again today. I want to explain the meaning of another song, but one by the Rolling Stones called, I Get No Satisfaction. How many of you are familiar with that song? Okay, so a few hands. Okay, not everybody. Uh, Of course, most of us wouldn't be super familiar with the Rolling Stones because we didn't grow up in the right era. Uh, But uh, nonetheless, this is a very significant song for the Rolling Stones, and so perhaps you're familiar with it. Well, let me tell you some things about this song. Uh, This song was released in 1965 and would actually become one of Rolling Stone's most iconic and enduring hits. In fact, it was so big that some would say that this is the song that catapulted the Rolling Stones uh, to a, a place of fame that surpassed even the Beatles at that time. And so today, this song really is considered to be uh, one of the signature hits of the Rolling Stones. And why did it take off? Well, as you probably know, uh, the 60s were kind of a crazy time. There was a lot going on. There was significant social, political, and cultural unrest. Uh, You had the Vietnam War. You had concerns with communism. Uh, You had the civil rights movement that was in full force. But you also had a spirit of consumerism that was alive and well with messages to buy this or that thing because, you know, it's going to make your life much better. Life will be very improved if you, if you get this product. Uh, but as people were quickly discovering, none of that stuff was being, uh, none of the stuff being advertised to them really seemed to deliver what it promised. And so combine all these things going on in the 60s and you had a great restlessness in people's souls. And with that, consider the chorus of the song, I can't get no satisfaction I can't get no satisfaction, because I try, and I try, and I try, and I try, and I can't get no, I can't get no. 
It's not even a statement that makes a whole lot of sense to me. I don't know that that's grammatically accurate. I can't get no, but uh, who am I to say? Obviously, the song took off. It became very popular, and it's because it touched on that nerve of restlessness within the soul. And if you listen to the song, I think it talks about going and buying white T-shirts and a number of other products. But hey, no matter what they bought, you couldn't find no satisfaction. Well, friends, we are three weeks, as I said, into the book of Ecclesiastes. And do you think that there could be a better theme song for our book? I don't think so. In fact, it is almost like Solomon himself could have written that song and the Rolling Stones just happened to find it in the closet in the 60s. I don't know. And why would I say this? If you have your Bibles open, look at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Let me remind you about the theme of this book. Listen to what Solomon says. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Then he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I've already explained this verse, but it's important as we move ahead that we don't forget really the meaning of these things. So let me explain first the word for vanity and what is meant by the statement of gain. Vanity comes from the Hebrew word havel. Some translate this word as meaningless. Maybe that's what you read when you look at your Bible Uh, But the true sense of the word really is that everything in this life is a puff of smoke or a mist or a vapor that you see when you breathe out air on a cold morning. Because everything in this life, it's, it's here one moment and it's just gone the next, right? That's the picture. And so this connects with the idea of gain because the idea of gain is really what lasts What endures? What remains? What is permanent in this life? The word yatron is taken from the world of business. Most literally, it refers to that which is left over. You think of uh, surplus. You think of your bank account. Uh, Is your bank account in the red or is it in the black? If it's in the black, there's some surplus. And Solomon's answer to the question is pretty obvious, isn't it? What's What's gain in this life? Well, apart from God, nothing is gain. Nothing is left over. Because when you die, you're not going to take anything with you, are you? Everything that you have in terms of physical possessions is going to remain right where you left it on the day that you perish. And, and so here's the picture of life. It's really broken down in verses 1 through 11. We see a couple of examples of what life is like. One from histories, we see how... One generation comes and another generation goes. More people are born and more people die. And verse 11 points out the sad part is that people aren't remembered. And so we know even those that are most famous in our world are still not going to be remembered for all that long. Another illustration, though, given in verses 1 through 11 happens to be from nature. And here's where we see endless repetitions in the world around us. And the point really is this, that just as the wind comes and goes, just as the sun rises and sets, just as streams flow to the ocean, but it never fills up, uh, that's pretty much life. Uh, Life is marked by movement without progress, activity without advancement, exertion without accomplishment, and action without improvement. 
and uh, creates a really frustrating and burdensome thing for us, doesn't it? Because we all want progress. You probably this week have got a few projects on your mind. Well, I can't wait to get to this thing. And maybe some improvements you want to make around the house. Uh, maybe some improvements you want to make in your life. You want to get to the gym. You want to work out. You want to build some muscles, right? We all like to see progress. Well, the picture with Ecclesiastes is really, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a whole lot of progress. Because again, when you die, guess what? You're just going to leave your stuff behind to someone else. And it's frustrating because we think to ourselves, as we think about progress, well, if I just had this pill, life would be better. If I, you know, if I just had this job, then my life would be more satisfying. If I just had this if I just had this piece of technology, or if I just had this perfect church, or if I just had this new car, or if I just had this particular spouse, or if I just had these types of kids, and on and on and on it goes, doesn't it? And we just want life to be more satisfying. But if we got these things, would it? Would it? Not if you listen to Ecclesiastes, because the message is very clear. If you look to anything other than God, you will always only ever be let down. That's the reality. And remember what makes this particular book so interesting and unique to us. It's because of the author, Solomon. Uh, he writes from a first-hand experience, and he essentially, as the preacher, remember the word really is koeleth, which means one who assembles or gathers. He's putting his arms around us, bringing us in, and he's, he's saying to us, let me tell you something. I don't, I don't want you to put your hope in the world because I can guarantee you from my life that it won't satisfy at the end of the day. And how can he be so sure about this? And how can we be so sure that he has really searched everywhere there is for meaning? Because again, we're talking about Solomon. We're talking about the greatest king, the wealthiest king, the most powerful king who has ever lived on the face of the earth. So he's got, he's got wealth, he's got influence. More than that, though, he also has more wisdom than anybody has ever had, right? So, I mean, he has the mind to be able to explore and investigate and study. He knows, if anybody knows how to find the answers, it's him. And, of course, so he goes on this search for meaning. And where does his search go first? Well, we looked at that last week, and we noticed where his first quest for meaning takes him. It takes him to the university. It takes him to the academy. He gives himself fully to the pursuit of wisdom itself. He goes to the laboratory, and he resolves to find meaning in his learning. And today, we, we see plenty of the same thing still, don't we? Plenty of people who say, well, I know how I'm going to experience the ultimate. I know how I'm going to experience meaning and satisfaction and purpose. I'll go to school. I'll get educated. I'll get a degree because knowledge is power and knowledge is opportunity and knowledge is freedom. And really the, the greatest heights of this mindset can be found in the area of philosophy. Uh, for the longest time, uh, philosophy has sought the greatest questions to our existence through knowledge. Uh, we could think of a person like Rene Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. Philosophers had always hoped that they were going to reconstruct the world, starting with themselves. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going from? 
when I die. Oh, I know how to figure all that out. I'll just use my mind. And of course, the problem there is that they elevated human reason over divine revelation. Well, that gets you nowhere. And Solomon discovered that as well. And Solomon told us last week, he, he looked for meaning and significance in his learning, but he couldn't find it. And so today, notice the shift. He looks somewhere else for meaning and significance. And where is it? Probably is not going to surprise you. He turns to sinful self-indulgence and decadent pleasure-seeking in the world. That's where his second quest to find meaning goes. Let me say it again. He turns to sinful self-indulgence and decadent pleasure-seeking in the world. And friends, let me just say, we need to pay attention to this. You and I need to pay very close attention to this. Because what are we so tempted to do? Well, not only before following Christ... But also after, we too are tempted to look to the world for satisfaction that only God can bring. And this is so prevalent, I want to show you just how many times the Word of God speaks specifically to Christians on this issue. I'm going to run through a number of verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. You don't need to turn there, I'm just going to move through these uh, pretty rapidly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. What a great reminder. Uh, this world's not our home. It's not our home. We're just sojourners. We're just passing through, heading to another land, to a distant place. You think about the idea of flesh. I mean, that's what we are still right now. If you don't believe me, go ahead and pinch yourself, right? Ouch, you'll feel it. We're fleshly creatures. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Don't think about this world. Don't spend all your time pursuing this world or you're going to miss out. Set your mind on things that are above. We read from James this morning, but let me quote from chapter 4. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not the passions that are at war in your members? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Listen, friends, there is a way of life that comes naturally to us. There is a way of life that is appealing to us because even after coming to faith in Jesus Christ, even after being given the Holy Spirit, we still are fleshly creatures. We still have passions that will not die easily. And therefore, we are called into a fight, a fight that needs to persist against the flesh. And three reasons we need to persist in this fight. And number one, it is a battle that we are commanded to fight. Uh, number two, it's a battle that we need to fight because it prevents conformity to Christ. The world does and the flesh does, which is what God wants. He wants conformity to Jesus Christ, not conformity to the world. You could think of Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the what? To the world. But be transformed by the renewal of your minds. The third reason to persist in fighting against the flesh, though, is this. Listen to the warning behind not uh, fighting this fight. 
Romans 8 says this, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Pretty clear what is being said there. Paul says, if you just give into the world, if you don't think anything about fighting against the world, you know what the evidence points to? The fact that you aren't truly a child of God. And so I need to ask you this morning, friends, how much thought do you give to the stuff that surrounds you? How much do you think about the hold of your heart on the things of this world? First John says the same thing. It's the same idea. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And again, we need to hear this as we enter into listening to Solomon because those things that were just mentioned in 1 John, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, that's what he gives himself to. And he goes all in as we will see. And so with that, if you would, look at chapter 2. Follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 1. Solomon's own testimony is this. We read, I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them and all kinds of, in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Now, I want you to especially keep in mind that last verse we just read, verse 10. Uh, Solomon is essentially saying to us, to be clear, I went all in with pleasure. I gave everything I had. I went to everything I could. And you kind of get the sense then that Solomon was like a kid in a candy store with no restrictions, no boundaries, and no parental oversight. Oh yeah, Solomon says, whatever I craved, whatever looked promising to me, uh, whatever I thought might bring me satisfaction... You better believe I indulged in it. Question, though, what did Solomon actually indulge in? And what pleasures did he chase after? I'm going to give you a list today. Maybe you just write down this list. And later this week, even, you come back to it and go, does my heart love and pursue these things more than Christ? Do these things grip me more than Christ himself? Let's assess the different ways that Solomon sought pleasure then. Uh, first thing we see here is that Solomon went after play and laughter. Play and laughter. Look at verse 2. We read, I said of laughter, it is mad. So Solomon turns to 
hilarity and lightheartedness and merrymaking. And many believe this has the idea of partying with it, where Solomon would surround himself with people and jubilant festivities and endless company where he would dine and laugh and eat and recreate with others. And there is no doubt that if anybody could have thrown a good party, it would have been Solomon. Absolutely. And 1 Kings 4, in fact, we're told how Solomon had 12 officers set aside just to provide food for him and his household. I'm guessing you don't have that many people at your house. Usually I feel like we're flipping a coin. Who's going to go to the grocery store? Is it going to be you, honey, or is it going to be me? Well, only one of us is really required. Solomon had 12 people. You want to know what his grocery list was like? Let me tell you. 1 Kings chapter 4 tells us in verse 22, Solomon's provision for one day, one day, was 30 course of fine flour and 60 course of meal. Okay, that probably doesn't do much for you, didn't do much for me. We don't understand grain or bread or this area of flour, right? But the meat, listen to the meat section. We get this. Also, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. There's an emphasis here not only on quantity, but quality. It wasn't like there was just 10 oxen. It was 10 fat, really fat oxen. Fattened fowl, plumpy, juicy critters, okay? Now, I, I'm, some of you, you buy meat, maybe you buy like a half of a cow, you put it in the freezer, and that lasts you for months. Again, this is just the daily provision for Solomon. And interestingly, some estimates suggest that it would take thirty or 40,000 people to consume that much food each day. Even if it's less, though, think of the spread, I mean, we're talking about a Brazilian steakhouse experience for sure. Have you ever been to one of those places? If not, you need to get there. I think maybe the closest Brazilian steakhouse is in Minneapolis. But let me tell you what they do at these places. You get a card, and it sits there at the table. And on the one side of the card, it's green. Green means it's go time. So they keep coming to you with one kind of meat, after another, after another. And then when you're feeling like you need to go stretch the pants out a little bit and let things sit, you flip it over to red. And then when you're ready to go again, you can just flip it back over, right? I just envision that that's the experience dining in Solomon's palace. You want some oxen? Let me give you some oxen. You want some fowl, some fattened fowl? Right? Maybe some like pieces of meat that are wrapped in turkey bacon because we're keeping it biblical. No pork for the Jews, right? I don't know. And of course, as people ate their food, they could banter, they could laugh, they could forget about the serious things in life. And you know, that's really common today, isn't it? People just want a great escape. And they want to keep things light. That's actually why sports are so popular, isn't it? People get so sick of the news, 
It's just nothing but negative. They get tired of the headaches from work, conflicts with family. So they just want to lighten up the mood. Can we just keep it easy here? And I think it's also why we have a real epidemic today when it comes to gaming. Staggering to look at statistics of gamers today. It used to be that uh, you could just count on teenagers gaming it up. Uh, now, adults game it up. And hey, that's fine, okay? I'm not being hard on you if you like your games, all right? But there's clearly been an addiction that has set in where people are now neglecting their families because they just want to check out, they just want to keep things lighthearted, and they just want to drown themselves in their gaming so that they don't have to think about life as it actually is and what needs to be done. And, of course, Solomon, uh, with this festivity and with his dining and with his company, uh, certainly would have had something else to go with the food. Uh, He would have had quality wine on hand. And that's the second thing, notice, that he turns to for pleasure. Look at verse 3. He says, I searched with my heart. Remember the heart. The idea is I gave everything I had. The heart isn't just the place of affection, it's the place of volition, it's the place of the will, it's the central processing unit for the life. I gave everything that I was, all my strength, all my focus, how to cheer my body with wine. And here's how I imagine things. I imagine Solomon sipping on some wine, kind of leaning back in his chair, thinking to himself, what's that do for me? Ah, I don't think this is it. So he'd sip a little bit more, probably experienced uh, a number of different wines. He owned vineyards, we're told that. So he'd try this wine, he'd try that wine. Now there's a phrase probably for what Solomon is uh, up to here. It's called self-medicating, right? You hear that phrase today. People are always trying to self-medicate. And they search for drink and drug alike, looking for something that will give them satisfaction as they look to please the body and numb the mind and drown out the sorrows of the world and give themselves a boost that will help them chill out and set aside the worries of work and family and school and everything else. And we don't have any indication that Solomon got drunk to the point of losing his mind. I I just don't see that with Solomon. I don't think that we should envision that with Solomon uh, and, and here's why I say that. Look at verse 3. There's an interesting statement. He says that he cheered his body with wine as he did this, that his heart still guided him with wisdom. You see that? And it, and it makes sense that he really didn't care to get drunk because you go look at the book of Proverbs and you'll see repeated statements of just how stupid it is to go get drunk. You want to ruin your life? You want to mess things up? Solomon says... Oh, just, just go love wine. It will have devastating effects. So I don't think that he was out of control. And uh, maybe we chalk it up to the, the kindness of God for us because we get to benefit from his wisdom still today, don't we? As we look back and, and he's able to tell us, listen, I went where I don't want you to go. I tried everything there is to try and don't follow in my footsteps. So uh, Solomon's wits were still about him. And it really is amazing because when you see people fall into substance abuse today, uh, that is not usually what happens, is it? No substances happen to change minds. They change chemicals in one's brain, and uh, people become less and less able to reason and think and use logic. And that clearly wasn't Solomon, though. 
So Solomon tried laughter and he tried wine. What else? Third, he also tried possessions and materialisms. Uh, materialism. He went all in on possessions. Look at verse four. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. And just consider what he's saying here. Uh, Solomon was an important figure because, uh, as we know, he built something rather important. Uh, do you remember what the most important thing is that Solomon put together, what he constructed? Any idea? It's the temple, right? His father, David, wanted to build the temple. God said, oh, you've been a man of bloodshed. You're not going to be able to build the temple, but here's what I'm going to let you do. You can save up money. You can gather supplies. So when Solomon becomes king, then he can finally build the temple. Well, notice what's not mentioned here, the temple, right? I mean, you see nothing mentioned about the temple, and yet he's talking about these great, big works that he participated in. Why leave out the temple? Here's why I think, because what he wants us to understand is that this is just what he built for himself, Right? I mean, he's not talking about the stuff he did for the benefit of other people. He's saying, this is what I did just for my own personal enjoyment and sheer satisfaction. And he didn't just build one home. He built many homes. He built, it almost seems, communities. You probably know some people with multiple homes. They don't hold a candle, though, to Solomon. He would have outdone everyone you have ever met. I mean, if you could have your pick of anything, think of life. Where, where, where would you want to live? And some of you, you'd, you'd say, I'll, I'll pick a cabin in Vail. I'll pick a beach house in the Bahamas or maybe in Naples. Maybe even a, a home that overlooks the Grand Canyon. Kids, can you think about that? Living on the Grand Canyon? A zip line that goes for miles? Solomon could have had that. He built homes, multiple homes, the nicest homes. But he didn't stop at homes, did he? No, he also built vineyards and gardens and parks. Now, I know this isn't going to be a perfect parallel, but uh, in any case, now, some of you might be uh, aware that we've got some exciting things that are about to happen in Fargo. Uh, there's a place going up called The Wave. How many of you have heard of this place? Oh, yeah, bring this place on, right? Uh, it's going to be a 135-room hotel connected to an indoor water park with 50,000 square feet of net play area. 50,000 square feet of net play area. So uh, this is going to be the biggest water park in the state of North Dakota. It's going to be like our own personal Disneyland area right in North Dakota. You know what I'm saying? And when you go there, though, uh, I know what's going to happen you're going to be like, this is cool, but why are there so many people? <laughs> Guys, Solomon never had that problem. He, he didn't show up somewhere and go, look at all the people, because it was for him. He built all this stuff for his own personal enjoyment. Now, I, I don't think that's what Solomon had in mind when uh, we read about parks. I don't think <laughs> the Bible's talking about water parks, but hey, we can dream, right? We do know what it was like for him. He had these 
immaculate gardens filled with all sorts of fruit. And the way that this reads when you're reading here, it it actually sounds like paradise on earth. It, It actually should take your mind to thinking about Eden, thinking about Genesis. That's what Solomon tried to do. He tried to recreate Eden. He tried to find for himself a paradise on earth. And he's saying, I went after it, and it didn't satisfy. He had a forest filled with trees, a garden filled with fruit, and all sorts of other vegetation. But it didn't stop there, did it? No, he also had slaves and flocks and herds, and furthermore, silver and gold. He had so much income. There was a guy that you'd think if anybody could find satisfaction checking their bank account, it was Solomon. And he tried to find satisfaction in that. He had so much income. Look at verse 8. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. In fact, uh, some estimate Solomon's annual income uh, was about $1 billion a year, uh, if you take it just in terms of modern currency. In fact, so great was Solomon's fortune that silver and gold were soon to be regarded in Jerusalem as stones. That's how filthy rich this guy was. Like you walk around Jerusalem and you're going, oh, that's gold. More gold. Gold here, gold there. You have a friend visit. They come in. They're like, man, this is amazing. Look at all the gold. And you're like, whatever. You blow your nose in gold. I mean, (laughs) that's, that's how common that gold was for him. But it didn't stop there. What else did Solomon have? Fourth, we know he had entertainment at his fingertips. We're told he had male and female singers. If he was sitting around, if he was bored, all he had to do was just look over and say, me, you, song, start. That was it. That's all he had to do. Now, we might look at this and go, well, (laughs) I don't need to worry about trying to find satisfaction in the world because I don't have access to all these things. But I would ask you, are you sure about that? You don't think you don't have slaves in your life, people to do your bidding, carry out your work, get what you want? What do you call Amazon? Right? Buy now? How many of you get the buy with one click feature on? That is dangerous beyond belief. And you get this satisfaction. A smiley box arrives on your doorstep. Oh, look at this thing. No, I think we have access to more things than Solomon ever did in his lifetime. The world is at our fingertips like never before. So beware, friends, beware. So Solomon gave himself to all these things. And finally, what's the last thing we notice? Where did Solomon go for satisfaction? Finally, he went to romance. He went to the significant others. The number of lovers that Solomon had is truly staggering. He had romance to no end. In fact, uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3 tells us this, uh, how Solomon had, listen to this, 700 wives and 300 concubines. The math brings us to how many women? A thousand, Right? Why so many? Well, certainly part of it had to do with political alliances. There's no question about that. This is something that rulers would do. Uh, They would want to expand their kingdom by marrying the girl next door because all of a sudden, 
If I marry someone from that family, then we are family, and I don't have to worry about them shooting me in the back. So it brought political stability. So there was an element of that, but uh, I don't think that's all that was going on here. No, I think he was truly in it for the romance as well. He was captivated by the beauty of all of these women, and women from all over the place, women from Egypt, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, but of course we know what the outcome was with all of that, right? It was ultimately the Achilles heel for Solomon because it would be his love of these foreign wives that would lead his heart astray after false gods. So this is all that Solomon indulged in, and, but again, what is his assessment? Well, Solomon's really clear in his assessment, which is why you really kind of have a pleasure sandwich here when you're just reading the text, meaning that at the beginning of chapter 2 is a statement about the dissatisfaction of all the pleasures, and then a statement at the end. I tried it all, and guess what? It cannot provide. Look at verse 2. Solomon says, of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? And then in verse 11, he says, then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Remember that picture of striving after the wind. I just think it's so beautiful. The idea is shepherding the wind. You try to herd cattle. You try to herd cats. You have not tried to herd the wind, though. Shepherd the wind. And the point here is obvious. It's, it can't be done. And as much satisfaction as he sought, he just couldn't ever find it. It escaped him time and time again. And so, friends, the point is this. Nothing in this world, I hope you understand, is going to satisfy you. And so the key question then that enters our mind as we think about this, okay, well, then what is to prevent us from chasing after the world? I think that's a question we need to ask as we think about these things. And you know what the solution is? I think Solomon gives us a certain antidote. I don't think it's the only antidote. Uh, I think there are other things that benefit us as we think about letting the word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts and following him. But listen to what Solomon says next in verses 12 through 17. So we notice how Solomon starts his quest with wisdom, right? That's where his pursuit went first for satisfaction. Then he turns to testing himself with pleasure. Now he's going to turn back and say something again about wisdom But the purpose in a statement is really to point us to a very sobering reality. And what is it? That no matter the kind of life you live, whether you live foolishly or wisely, and remember Solomon studied both. He studied madness and folly and wisdom. There's always going to be one result. And what is it? That at the end of your life and my life, the outcome is always the same. One day you're going to die. Look at verse 12. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. 
How the wise dies just like the fool, so I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, it's interesting if we wanted to just kind of clear up what Solomon is saying here. He's simply saying, I'm not telling you that wisdom has no benefit. Oh, there's great benefit in wisdom. But even the wisest life you live still gets you to the same point as the foolish person. That at the end of your life, you can't take anything with you. At the end of your life, it's all done, it's all over, and it will soon be long forgotten. And uh, friends, we need to hear this. Because we do not live in a way that contemplates death often enough. And, and, And I think this is because when we think about our lives, everything is about life itself, isn't it? It's always about helping us live longer. We look to everything to increase the length of our life. We look to things to improve the quality of our life. Everything in our society revolves around life. We rarely think about death, and yet if we are to listen to the wisdom of Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he's saying, if you want to live today rightly, it is going to require you to think about your death. So friends, how often have you contemplated the days remaining in your life? You read through the Psalms and you see that statement, teach me to number my days. That is a key source of wisdom in our life when we realize that we are so temporary, that life is so fleeting, that we truly are gonna be here and gone in just an instant, and what will have been your legacy? What will be gained? What's going to last? If not in Christ, friends, I'm here to tell you, nothing will last. And even the life that you have after this one will be meaningless because it will be an eternity in hell apart from the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Friends, you cannot take the stuff with you that you have in this life. And of course, that is why Jesus came. He came so that you and I could have life truly, abundant life, eternal life, a life that lasts, a life where we get to be with him forever. And the beauty of this, friends, I hope you realize is you can have that today. You can have an abundant and eternal life that begins today as Jesus himself offers you a down payment of something extraordinary, the gift of himself, the presence of God in your life. And it's just an amazing thing. And, uh, and, and here's part of the wonder of all this, and I want you to get this. But the stuff in this world, right, it's not bad. It really isn't. It's not bad. God gives you gifts in your life, and you ought to worship him as a result of the gifts that he's given to you. And you ought to be thankful to him for all that he's given to you. But let me tell you something. Until you love Jesus more than everything, you will be controlled by everything. And you will even use everything you have in your life for your own sinful pleasures if you do not turn to Christ. You're going to continue to be a slave unless you do one thing, and it is to turn to Christ. He is the one that has the power to set the captives free. And so, friend, do you see your sin? Do you see your rebellion? Do you see how you are a slave to the world? Then all I can do is encourage you, turn to Jesus Christ, the God-man the one who came 
the one who lived the life that we could not live, the one who died the death that we deserved, that we would truly know lasting satisfaction. And there's actually a beautiful story that Jesus told to drive this point home in his own life. You might recall the story. It's the story of the prodigal son. Two sons. One comes to the father, says, I, I, I'm ready to have what's coming to me. Give me my inheritance now. And what's he do? He goes out, and we're told that he squanders his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's the confession of a person who really understood how far he had fallen. Can you say that in your own life, that you see how far you have fallen? The encouragement of today is this, that if you are willing to see how far you have fallen, if you are willing to acknowledge what you've done wrong, guess what? All can be forgiven. And God waits eagerly to forgive you. Look at the response of the father. While he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And then there's this big celebration that follows. The son says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The fact is that God offers you forgiveness to clear all of your sins, but he does so abundantly with joy. Friends, take advantage of it. Run to Christ and have forgiveness. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Mapleton or even in the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.